things that the Lord put on their level. Our text this morning is Philippians 2, 1 through 11. This is the last sermon in the series on humility this morning, just to let you know. And I want to pray for our hearing of the Word of God, and I neglected to pray for Alec Waterhouse. Alec lost his mom this week. I want to pray the Lord's comfort and grace to be lavished upon Alec, Katie, and their family. So let's pray together. We thank you for the promise, Lord Jesus, of your word that we are free to grieve, but we do so as those who grieve with hope. And so we ask for our dear brother Alec that as he grieves the loss of his mother, you'll fill his heart with the hope of glory, thankfulness for her life, or you'd comfort him, give him grace to, to grieve in your presence. We know you catch his tears in your bottle, the word of God promises. So use this in the economy of your working and this precious family, even as they are gathering their lives together around their home that was burned, and extend your hand to show you are intensely interested in their welfare down to the minutest details. Provide abundantly of your grace all that they need. And all that we need is in your word, Lord. So open our eyes to it. Open our hearts. Open our minds. As we stand before this text, it's quite holy ground, these 11 verses. So may we stand in awe of you, longing to hear you, longing to change, longing for Christ. Give us yourself, Lord Jesus, by the power of your spirit, in your name. Amen. Philippians 2, 1 to 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition. Or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If you are ever parachuting out of an airplane, 
And I know this because my 29-year-old son, Luke, is training to jump out of an airplane in June for the 75th anniversary of D-Day. He's going to be jumping out of an airplane into Normandy, and I know this, therefore, that if you're jumping out of an airplane with a parachute, as you get close to the ground, resist the urge to look at your feet. Instead, keep your eyes on the horizon as you land. The instinct is to look at your feet and the ground. If you do, you will hurt yourself. The same is true in relationships. Our instinct is to look at ourselves. What makes relationships work the way God designed them is to resist that instinct to be so self-focused and to look at the other person, to be other-centered. I don't know of any other text in the Bible that so carefully unpacks the essential elements of humble other-centeredness than this text. I need this text more than anything. As I think about marriages that are struggling, I think about relationships that are struggling, the first impulse of my heart is to say, Lord, give them humble other-centeredness because we can conquer a lot of sin with humble other-centeredness. What are the essential elements that Paul unpacks for us? First of all, it's foundation. Notice how Paul begins. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, what is Paul doing? He knows that being other-centered eludes us. We have no natural appetite for humble other-centeredness. We have no strength for it. So what Paul does is he sets before us the benefits of Jesus. He spreads a banquet table, as it were, of the glories of the grace of what we have in Jesus Christ. Love, encouragement, participation in the Spirit, affection, and sympathy. And he says, gorge yourself. <laughs> Feast on the inexhaustible riches of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be strengthened and changed to get your focus on other people. Let me put it this way. Because the doctrine of union with Christ is oozing through the beginning of this text. If I'm in union with Christ and enjoy all the benefits of what is true of Jesus, and you're in union with Christ, that actually means we are supping at this table together. That's why he exhorts us to have the same mind, to be one accord. We're in this journey to be other-centered as one people, one family. That's the foundation. You could put it this way. Humble other-centeredness is impossible without a shared biblical worldview. Secondly, motives. Paul is very quick to expose two motives that work against being other-centered. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition. Hello? 
Virtually everything I do, it seems, is motivated by what I want. Selfish ambition, it's when you pursue what makes you happy, regardless of the consequences to others. So Paul seems to be saying, how can can we be united in the love of Christ when I'm putting my agenda, my success, my profit, my comfort, my power, my preferences ahead of yours? Here's the principle. Self-promotion, by definition, creates other demotion. It's not a level playing field. If I'm putting myself before you, the loving, and, and that's why he goes on and he says, do nothing from conceit. What's that? It's an overestimation of my value so that I feel superior to you. Again, how do we have unity if someone feels superior to another person? What actually levels the playing field? Well, for starters, love. Almost a commentary on this is 1 Corinthians 13, 4 and 5. Love is patient, kind. Love doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. That's conceit. My way or the highway. Love is not irritable or resentful. So none of us can claim to be better than the other person because we are what we are by the grace of God. It's all by the grace of God. If you find yourself failing less than others or succeeding more than others, it is ultimately the grace of God. There's no room for boasting. And that's why Paul eventually gets to this point in the text. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In the light of God's glory, All every human being can do is bow the knee and confess his glory. That's a very level playing field. There's no conceit in the presence of the glory of God. Just to put it practically, if I'm all about me, I can't be focused on you. I'm focused on me. If if I'm puffed up with pride, I'm actually then blind to your needs. I can't even see what it is you need. If I'm focused on my needs, by definition, I'm blurred to what your needs are. And so we begin to destroy the unity, the love, the one-mindedness Paul so, is so jealous for us to have in the church together. So one manifestation of other-centeredness is I'm asking myself, what impact do I have on you? That really matters. And I've teased out a couple questions for you in the outline. In love, it matters to me how you experience me. How how are you experiencing me? How am I impacting you? You want to know this. Does your experience of me pull me in or push me away? Do you know certain people when you're with them, it's kind of like, I'm getting this vibe that Do my words, my demeanor, my eye contact craft a welcoming space for you? I mean, this is the gospel. God has said, sinner, you're welcome into my presence ever and always. We have the privilege of imitating that in our relationships, but we need to think about, is my impact on you 
welcoming, pushing? Does my presence, tone, and posture bespeak safety or risk? Objectively, there are certain people that aren't safe to be around. I'm not denying that. And we need wisdom to know that. Children, look to your parents. They've been down that road before. Look to your parents to get wisdom to know those kinds of people are not safe for your welfare. But as a rule, in our families and our church relationships, do my reactions, spontaneous or planned, create a pleasant environment? Some, I'm thinking of one person, none of you know, that when I'm around, sometimes this person's reactions are like, they kind of fly off the handle. It's not pleasant to be around that. So there's no self-awareness of how they're impacting me. Love cares about that. Do you sense right now that nothing is more important to me than your welfare? I get the sense when I read through the Gospels and Jesus is interacting with different people, you get the sense that when, that, when Jesus was looking at that person, there was nothing else more important to Jesus than that person. You get that sense. That's love. I'm not sure I'm very good at that. Here's the, the last question. Do you have to endure me talking at you unaware of dominating the discussion? Are you grateful that my questions and responses are drawing you out and giving you a receptive audience? You need to think about these things. You need to be aware of how you impact people. Love demands that. Other-centeredness doesn't work without that. So, so I've got a, in your outline a continuum here. As a rule... How do you tend to interact with others? As a rule, and it might depend on the situation, it might depend on the person, I'm gonna give you all kinds of qualifications, but as a rule, for example, if you wanna look at the outline, are you caring, sympathetic, and concerned, or aloof, distracted, and uninterested? Where does love land? Over here. As a rule, are you open, inviting, and warm, or shy, self-protective, standoffish, and cold? As a rule. Is love standoffish and cold? Of course not. As a rule, disarming and vulnerable, or overbearing, dominating, and condescending? As a rule, attentive and focused, or at the other end of the continuum, controlling, self-absorbed, or demanding? As a rule, where do you find yourself falling out? Generally affirming of others or merely selfishly seeking their approval with flattery. As a rule, engaging, interested, and inquisitive, or unapproachable, critical, and self-promoting. Where do you fall out, typically? Where does God need to change you? Depends on the situation. Might depend on the person. But if you want to love others, you've got to understand the impact you have on them. That's what humble love says. Is my impact promoting your interests? Are you better off for our interaction? And it's interesting that two manifestations of pride look very different, but they're ultimately still focused on ourselves. For example, some of us care too much what people think of us. We care too much. We need their approval. We need to be liked. We care too much. Others care too little. This is the person who says, I always speak my mind. Everybody knows exactly where I stand. Do you see how that's pride too? How can you love someone if you don't care what your impact is on them? So where do you fall out? I care too much. I care too little. 
How do we have unity of mind and perfect, uh, unity of mind and love and, and other-centeredness if it's still all about me? The method, thirdly, the method of humble other-centeredness. Paul gives two specific attitudes that promote other-centeredness. Verse 3, let each of you count others more significant than yourself. Now, come on, really, seriously, look, if, if we had an interactive audience, right, what would you be saying right now? Impossible! This is a, st a standard none of us can meet. Are you kidding? Has Paul lost his mind? Where do you find the freedom to do that? You have to be so secure in your status as a beloved child of God that you can put others first. Suppose you're waiting in the, in the, um, in the airport in the, the place where they're loading the airplane. And the lady at the desk, the man at the desk, calls you up and says, Sir, are you in seat 32C? Yes, I am. Well, there's this family traveling together and their seats are spread apart. Would you be willing to give up your seat so they can sit together? Of course. Because they're going to put me in first class. <laughs> See, you can focus... You can put others, count others more important than you. You're in first class, beloved. You're loved by Jesus. You're rich. You have more first class seats than you know what to do with. This can't be done without constantly drawing on the riches of what you have in Christ, what Paul calls encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, participation in the Spirit. And then he says, here's the other way it happens, looking not only to your interests, but to the interests of others. In other words, in the pattern of Jesus who stops people and basically says, how can my resources make your life better? We do the same thing. You don't have to be blind to your needs. You don't have to build, look, if you give no thought to what's important to you, you may be bankrupt of what you have to give others. Here's an illustration. My wife loves to care for our grandchildren. Little toddlers, little babies. She gives of herself when she has opportunity endlessly. However, there is a limit to the lifting and the picking up lest she hurt her back. Now, if she gave without thought to the welfare of her back, she may eventually get to the point where she can't give at all. So it takes wisdom, judgment, thought to know what it looks like to put others' interests ahead of yourself. Because this is so important and so difficult to pull off, let me tease out what this looks like in action. And I have four A's. How do you do this? Number one, adorn God's mercy. And the text I have for you is the text that, um, sorry, who read our scriptures earlier? Charles did. It's the text from Titus chapter 3. 
And what Paul is saying is, the only way to deal with the frailties, the infirmities, the foibles of other people is to come out the door draped in the mercy of God. In other words, before I begin to think about anything else in my life, my first thought is, my perspective is, God has not given me what I deserve. Walk out the front door and go, guess what? I'm never going to suffer eternal punishment for my sin. Never. It's almost as if, we, if to be other-centered, we need to smell the sulfur burning in hell and go, never for me. That's what I've been delivered from. Now I can treat other people with grace and with mercy. Paul's logic is, how can you treat others with contempt when you are a recipient of the stunning grace of God. If it isn't stunning and arresting to your heart, other people are going to irritate you. (laughs) He shows here how the, the gospel creates these dramatic reversals based on the text. God's wisdom overcomes your foolishness. God's righteousness covers your disobedience. God's kindness supplants my hatefulness. God's mercy washes away my quarreling and malice and envy. God's grace overrules my sinful passions. Adorn God's mercy, right? Never try relationships without thinking I have not, I'm never going to receive what I deserve. Secondly, assume a servant's attitude. Paul says, we have this mind which is yours in Christ Jesus. What was the fundamental way Jesus related to his environment? As a servant. In fact, Jesus has never stopped serving you. He is in heaven right now serving you, looking after your welfare, giving you life and breath, ordaining your path, extending his hand to care, to provide, and to protect. Jesus is never not serving you. It is the impulse of his heart, beloved. The only way I know I could get that in me is to pray it in, pray it in, pound it in, take the scriptures, read it, marinate my heart in the truth. Next, right? adorn God's mercy, assume a servant's attitude, assess the needs of the other person. Stop and ask, as Jesus did, the blind man, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? Now, if you think about toolbox here, this is the other center toolbox. Pick it up. Open it up. There are two vastly underutilized tools in that toolbox, in the other center toolbox. They are asking questions and patient listening. That's how you find out what people need. That's how you determine where they're hurting. That's how you know how to pray for them. That's how you show them you love them. You ask them questions, you don't assume you know, you are, in the words of James 1.19, quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. You listen, you reflect, you avoid the pitfall of Proverbs 18.13, the fool gives an answer before he hears. And you find out what's going on in their life, felt and unfelt needs. 
One of the things they tell seminarians when they get out of seminary and they go to their first ministry is this. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Because when you get out of seminary, you think everybody wants all this knowledge you built up. Well, eventually. Not until they know you care about them. Right? I want to add one to that. And it's this. People won't know how much you care until you listen much to know. And most of us stink at listening. (laughs) We're just not real good at it. But it communicates love. It's one very tangible expression of other-centeredness. I want to listen, ask more questions, listen. I want to be a food processor. Tell me more, here come the carrots, tell me more, here comes the broccoli, tell me more, here comes the cauliflower, tell me more, here comes the whatever you put in that thing, you process and out comes this healthy juice. Keep getting more. Some of us are like a jackpot machine. We say something and it's like, ding, out come all the coins of their thoughts, out come all the things they want to tell us, out come all the things that they want to share of their experiences. (laughs) Humble other-centeredness is, you're a processor. Give me, tell me more, tell me more. Let me think on this. Let me ask questions. Now, have you ever heard a sermon on how to listen? Isn't this just crazy? Last point in this, D. Act towards them in word and deed to build them up. Romans 15, 2. Let each of you please his neighbor for his good to build him up. I have resources that Jesus has given me. I want them to bless you. Finally, what is the means of humble other-centeredness? What is the means? Simply stated, beloved, the only power on earth to create in your heart and mind the ability to be more focused on others' needs than my own. Isn't this C.S. Lewis's definition of humility? Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It's the ability to be focused on others before yourself. The only power on earth is you must meet Jesus in his humiliation. So let's go to the manger, since this is Christmas. This is kind of a Christmassy text, as it were. Every visitor to the manger who knew what was going on, this is Emmanuel, had a right to ask baby Jesus, what are you doing here? (laughs) Right? You're God, infinite, almighty, eternal, all-glorious, What are you doing here? And before Jesus answered, they could ask another question. How did you get here? How did you get here? And if babies could speak, he would have said, I set aside all the prerogatives of equality with God, who is master of all, to become a servant. That's what Paul is saying in the text. Jesus Christ set aside the glories of his infinite oneness with his Father to take on a human body and especially to become a servant. 
So the humble servanthood of Jesus includes but is not limited to the fact that his heart lay in the grip of his father's glory and he joyfully submitted to his father's will. Joyfully submitted to his father's will. He felt no compulsion, did Jesus, to assert or promote himself. He feared no man, he flattered no one, he needed no one's approval. He felt no need to abuse his unlimited power. He endured hideous injustice uh, uh, without demanding his rights. Jesus suffered unwarranted scorn and derision and mocking and ridicule. Jesus loved the unlovely. He accepted the unacceptable. He embraced the filthy. And he suffered, ultimately, the servanthood you needed, dying on the cross, serving your greatest need to have the filth of your sin removed into his body. He served you, giving up his life in your place to make you perfect in his Father's eyes. So can we not say of Jesus... He was the perfect embodiment of truth with grace, tenderness with conviction, power with gentleness, self-sacrifice without failure, weakness without fear, strength without bullying, sovereignty without injustice, mercy without sentimentalism, anger without bitterness, tears without hopelessness, intensity without blinding, touch without abrasiveness, zeal without harshness. It is no wonder broken people were intoxicated with his presence and his glory. The broken found wholeness, the, heal- the sick found healing. Those in darkness saw light, those in life perceived the truth. The downcast were revived in hope. The shaken fled to a refuge, the hungry knew satisfaction. Those in chains were unleashed in freedom. One of the early church fathers who we studied at Dibulit this semester, Gregory of Neziansis, wrote in his third theological oration, he captured the beauty of Jesus' humility in its contrasts as regards the benefits to us. Here's what Gregory wrote. He hungered, but he fed thousands. He thirsted, but he cried, if any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He was weary, but he is the rest of them that are weary and heavy laden. He was heavy with sleep, yet he walked lightly over the sea. He pays tribute, yet out of a fish. Yea, he is king of those who demanded it. He prays, but he answers prayer. He weeps, but he causes tears to cease. He is sold and very cheap, but he redeems the world at great price, his own blood. As a sheep is led to slaughter, he is one of the, he is the shepherd of Israel. As a lamb, he is silent, yet he is the word and proclaimed in all the world. He is bruised and wounded, but he heals every disease and every infirmity. He is lifted up and nailed to, to a tree, but is the tree of life. He restores us. And he was given vinegar to drink mixed with gall, but he turned the water into wine. Whoever said he could have done it better? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, by your power, give us clearer vision for humble other-centeredness. In the pattern of your glory, your self-emptying, your servanthood, 
your humility. Perfect these graces in our families, our friendships, our church. Forgive us for how easily we are focused on ourselves. May the grace of humble other-centeredness adorn our hearts and you be magnified. In Jesus' name, amen.